Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is a frequent guest, John McGinnis. He's the George Dix Professor in Constitutional Law at Northwestern University uh, Law School, and he's a contributing editor of City Journal. He's written for many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, New York Post, and others. Uh, and he uh, writes regularly also at Law and Liberty, the website. Uh, he's the author of two books, Accelerating Democracy, Transforming Government Through Technology, and Originalism and the Good Constitution. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing legal topics. Uh, his essay, Law Betrayed, which appeared in uh, the most recent issue of City Journal, and describes the influence of identity politics on American legal ed education, the growing influence of identity politics. Uh, we'll also get John's perspective on the momentous Supreme Court ruling in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, which uh, has come down in recent weeks, as everyone knows. So, John, as always, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here, Brian. So, uh, to to discuss your story first, the law of trade, law of trade, uh, law professors are known, generally speaking, to be more liberal than the general public. Uh, but, you know, traditionally they took pride in fostering the open inquiry and debate that one would think is, is essential to a rigorous legal education. With the rise in recent years of a kind of ferocious identity politics, however, law schools have become much more monolithically left-wing. So ideas and legal theories that run counter to uh, progressive dogma are increasingly excluded from curricula, and professors and students who espouse these ideas are, are finding themselves shunned. So I, I wonder, you know, what, what key forces have contributed to this shift in law schools, and what's your own assessment of it is? I think you're absolutely right. The key uh, change has been uh, the composition of the uh, faculty and the composition of the student body. When I went into law teaching, people were uh, certainly on, on the liberal side of the spectrum, but they were, in some sense, traditional liberals who very much respected, indeed vigorously wanted to protect uh, freedom of speech, not only... Um, in the sense of uh, constitutional value, but in the sense of a, of a culture of uh, inquiry, which is really at the heart of a university and particularly at the heart of a legal system. They really prided themselves on that. And they demonstrated that in the way they conducted their classrooms through the Socratic method in which students had to defend uh, different positions on controversial cases, even positions that they might not take themselves. Uh, what has happened is we've seen a change, I think, in the faculty, and partly that is also because of the rise of identity politics, um, uh, racial and gender identification are very important now in faculty hiring. And there have been studies that have shown that uh, minority uh, and women are uh, to the left even of the li liberal democratic median white law professor. So that's one aspect uh, to it. Uh, another, I think, is the uh, students uh, who themselves, I think, have become uh, less tolerant. Now, that doesn't mean that majority are uh, intolerant, but a strong minority can uh, make 
life unpleasant. And the easier way for both uh, careerist reasons and just to have an easier life while at, uh, the stressful time of being at law school is not to put one's head above the parapet. And that allows the more radical students to dominate the atmosphere. And that leads actually to some traditional liberal faculty of being a little, themselves wary of bringing up things uh, in the classroom. And so those are the, um, I think, most important contributing factors. And this was all accelerated after the George Floyd riots with the idea that uh, systematic racism was really at the cause of all uh, America's evils. And that meant that not only uh, courses that taught about race uh, were uh, monolithically left, since everything affects race, uh, that has an effect on almost all courses, according to this idea of systematic uh, racism. Or, um, and so I think that uh, was, a, was the final propellant uh, to the state we're in today, a state that results in, uh, I think, a much less vigorous uh, contestation of important ideas. And it's demonstrated, I think, most dramatically after the Dobbs decision, where all sorts of panels at my law school and the most important professional organization of law professors didn't have any defender of Dobbs. This is the most important uh, decision about fundamental rights in a generation, and yet it was impossible uh, to debate it. Just, just completely monolithic, the, the discussion. Yes, at least on official, uh, uh, obviously, with, with uh, organizations like the Federalist Society, organizations that are uh, devoted to debate or, or right-leaning. But the, the, uh, what was extraordinary was, was, were panels at, at our, um, uh, the Association of American Law Schools, which is the, uh, the, the uh, organization of law schools. There was a panel with many, many um, uh, discussants where there was not one defender. And when someone was asked about that, they said, well, of course, maybe that's a good thing because we're right. And so that's a sense that uh, we're in the possession of the truth and error has no rights. And that's completely destructive to a legal system because, of course, we debate all the time. It's not obvious what laws mean uh, or what laws, in how we should approach legal meaning. That's what is debated all the time or should be debated in law schools. And this really... Uh, shuts that debate down when you feel that you're in possession of the truth and others uh, can't contest you. You know, the, the, uh, it's been a longstanding complaint of conservative scholars and conservative public intellectuals uh, that the American university is um, too ideologically left-leaning or far-left, uh, that there's a kind of uniformity of, of views on campus. Uh, but your argument in this essay is that this is a particular problem for law schools that has consequences that spill beyond the law school itself. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, what you mean by that? Why, why is it so important to society as a whole? And you started to address this in your, your, uh, previous comment. Um, you know, what, what is it about the, the role of law in a democratic society that makes uh, viewpoint pluralism uh, more important? Well, um, I think you'll, it's easy to compare it, for instance, to English departments. If they go uh, uh, completely woke, I mean, it's very costly. It's costly to um, people's understanding of literature, but what happens is that since someone's self-limiting, if they can't 
stir people's souls. People and students have been going elsewhere. But that's not true. Of, we need lawyers uh, for society. And particularly American society uh, needs lawyers because they're so, uh, the Tocqueville thought, them, thought they were the most important profession because important issues in our republic end up in court. And they're contested in court. And to get the best kind of contestation, one needs uh, a, a kind of pluralist views. And that begins at law school. One way of thinking, of course, about law school is that it creates the lawyer uh, for much of the rest of their life. And in, in one way, many, I think, of our Supreme Court justices are um, uh, reflecting some of the ideas they had at law school uh, that were dominant at their time in law school. And so if you don't have a process in which you can inquire and come to a view about what are the good ideas, uh, you're going to get a, a very etiolated uh, kind of um, legal discussion. And that's, that's a, a real concern. Uh, it also means that um, the law schools will be um, not serving their students also very well because um, uh, when they come to make uh, legal arguments, they won't really understand how to respond to them. In some sense, they're doing a disservice even to the left liberal students. But I want to say that's not the only disservice. The, the disservice is, is beyond uh, disabling students by not uh, giving them different kinds of arguments. Uh, the culture of intolerance, there's no doubt, is moving to our law firms. Um, uh, Paul Clement, uh, the premier Supreme Court advocate of his day, I think he's argued almost 100 uh, cases uh, on, on the court, after his victory in the Bruin case, a case about uh, allowing uh, guns to be carried outside homes, was told that he had to give up his client, this was at Kirkland Ellis, or leave the firm. And that's obviously costly to Kirkland Ellis to lose such a um, Supreme Court uh, advocate. But one of the reasons for that, as I understand it, was they were afraid of this, uh, his effect on recruitment to have uh, someone like this uh, on the firm, which you might have thought in the past would have been a marquee uh, partner who was people were eager to join, uh, was just too much uh, for some of the left liberal students they wanted. And so that shows how this intolerant atmosphere at law school, where there's not a willingness, uh, as lawyers have in the past, to take uh, all uh, sides with plausible legal arguments is is coming into our law firm. So that itself will have effects uh, because uh, law firms uh, not only make arguments for paying clients, they also represent people uh, pro bono. And it's now almost impossible, as I understand it, uh, at some of the larger law firms uh, to represent certain kinds of interests because, again, the law firms are, I think, fearful of how it will disturb the market for their associates. And then finally, I think one of the consequences, one of the knock-on consequences, is it's very bad for conservative uh, students. Because conservatives have traditionally been uh, an anchor of arguing for neutral principles and the rule of law. For the first time in my experience, we now have conservatives coming up and saying, well, that's really not a good idea. We should actually have result-oriented law. We should Get a, get a series of results 
and figure out how we can argue for it rather than look to the meaning of statutes and the Constitution. And I think that's also a consequence of what they've experienced in law schools. It's very hard to argue they should be following uh, neutral principles when they observe uh, the uh, very race-based admissions, uh, discrimination against uh, conservative professors, a kind of monolithic uh, left-wing atmosphere. It seems a mug's game to them uh, to uh, support these essential rule of law values. And that's really costly to society. You, you just mentioned uh, racial preferences. Uh, they've long influenced law school admissions with many schools um, you know, accepting minority applicants at a higher rate than their academic scores would predict. But the Supreme Court ruled last month in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, which I mentioned at the outset, uh, that the use of race in determining university admissions is now unconstitutional. Uh, the, the court's decision in this case has proved, as, as one would expect, pretty divisive. Um, how do you, as a, as a legal scholar, evaluate the ruling? Uh, does anything stand out to you in the concurring or uh, dissenting opinion? Well, uh, so uh, one thing I would say is uh, it's much less divisive uh, uh, in the American public uh, than in the elites. And, uh, yeah, for sure. Because it, it does seem to have a, a very substantial uh, uh, support, which I think is important to think about how, 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 we will, how it will have effects going forward. So you asked me about the concurring opinion. So I think uh, and the dissenting opinion. I think what's actually striking is some of the dissenting opinions, which really, uh, just to back up for a moment, you before uh, this decision, race was allowed, but only uh, make sure the argument was so, so only so long as it wasn't a quota, and only so long as it was to add quote diversity uh, uh, to the class, so that everyone would learn more. Uh, from uh, having uh, students of diverse racial groups. The Supreme Court struck that down, saying, I think, essentially, that that was ultimately incoherent because um, admission is a, is a zero-sum game, so you actually were harming some people, and that uh, even diversity led to stereotyping because there's no reason to believe that all blacks or all Hispanics uh, think the same, and some of them might think rather, rather like they're white students and yet would still get um, uh, a, um, a plus uh, factor under diversity. But what's striking, I think, about the dissenting opinions is how they even give up on that limited uh, use of race preferences, certainly in Jackson's opinion and to some extent in Sotomayor's um, uh, opinion. The argument is not for diversity, but the argument is for uh, sort of social justification and rectification that, in fact, uh, it's just the fact that uh, different races uh, participate in be become lawyers and have different results in various aspects of social life. That's a justification for preferences. And that justification, of course, it means that uh, racial um, preferences are in some sense illimitable because as someone like Thomas Sowell has shown, there's no society in the world where uh, different uh, racial and ethnic groups are represented uh, similarly in various elite groups in society. So that would mean, according to the dissent opinions, that universities would be empowered, and I think governments would be empowered, to manage 
the uh, proportions, the, the right proportions of race would be a tremendous increase in the power of uh, social engineering on one of the most divisive areas of life, potentially divisive areas of life, uh, choosing uh, people by race. So what I thought was extraordinary about, uh, I wasn't surprised by the decision uh, in, um, uh, in the case, but I was surprised by the dissents. The dissents, um, I think in that sense, are more honest because I don't think uh, uh, universities have been really following the, 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 the using race at the margin. Um, um, and, and I think in that sense, they're more honest, but it's striking the degree to which they will allow uh, social engineering of race in the, on behalf of, in some sense, proportional representation. A final question. I, I wonder, John, um, you know, clearly uh, universities, many of them are not going to want to f- comply with the court's decision. Uh, you know, the law now prevents schools from explicitly factoring race into admission decisions. But I wonder, you know, what's your view about how um, schools might try to get around this this uh, new uh, court decision? Well, I, I think they're going to have a dilemma here uh, because uh, um, one way, and it's been talk about in the law school context is we'll just should get rid of the LSAT. And the reason for that is different groups score at, on average, quite substantially different. Um, I, I think that's around a standard deviation difference between uh, African-American average and, 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 and the white average, for instance, was a very large uh, amount. Um, so uh, that's an idea. But the difficulty with that is that will make it harder to choose a class uh, that's uh, talented for all uh, races, because we won't be able to measure skills. We're throwing out very important information. So I don't think law schools ultimately can do that. And particularly law schools are going to have to do that, have trouble doing that, because undergraduate institutions can admit people of varying ability, and they can go off and do very different things. Uh, but uh, law schools, the first year, they're, everyone's in the same class. And having people of wildly different uh, abilities is a real problem for a teacher. And it's a real problem not only for the students who are on the weaker end, but it's a problem for the students on the upper end because it, it's difficult to teach. So I think it's going to be difficult for um, uh, law schools, at least, to replicate uh, the classes. And, and that's, that's, it's been the case where in Michigan and California, the, 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 the proportions of races have changed. And I think it'll be even more dramatic now with the federal law, because I think in places, for instance, like California, it was unlikely that the courts, because they're quite liberal in California, the state courts were going to police this. But I think uh, with the uh, judiciary that we have now, I think we're likely to see some follow-on lawsuits if law schools or indeed universities try to do an end run uh, around this. I also think it'd be a terrible thing if they do an end run, which will make the uh, schools less meritocratic, even without respect to race, because they'll get rid of all the useful signals uh, to determine a, a class that uh, is a good, as good as they can get uh, meritocratically. But also, it will really do very little 
uh, and that will do very little for even their ideas of, 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 of social justice. It will we'll have a, a continuing, therefore, mismatch of people going to different schools um, and uh, therefore less good results on the bar exam, but a less good uh, legal education. And that cannot be good even for those who want, uh, for those who have ideals of social justice, because they often have come through the courts and they've come through the courts uh, with people learning the best arguments and the best arguments in response to the arguments against them. So I think in some sense it will be self-defeating if schools go down that road. Some of them surely will try, uh, but I think they're going to have a harder time uh, than, uh, particularly at law school, uh, than some might suspect. Well, thank you very much for that uh, walkthrough, John. Uh, don't forget to check out John McGinnis's work on the City Journal website. That is at www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Uh, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. And John McGinnis, always great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.